For the past three weeks, our pastors and elders have been sharing with you our new mission statement, which is to know Christ and to make him known. And the first week, I took us through the story or the account of the woman at the well, and we looked at how making Christ known actually happens one conversation at a time. We just share with one person, and then when the opportunity comes, we enter into a conversation with someone else and share with them. The second week, our associate pastor, James Stevenson, talked about what it is that gives us the right to make Christ known. And we discovered that we have a mandate that actually comes from Christ himself. And then last week, one of our elders, Roland of Orohai, he shared that this assignment we've been given as disciples of Jesus is more than just a Sunday thing. It's not what we're doing now and then that's it, but it's a seven-day-of-the-week thing. And then we also highlighted some of the values that we hold dear at HCC. So how do I come to know Christ? Almost all Christians believe the first step in accepting God's gracious offer is faith. The Apostle Paul said to the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus. And then we also agree that a person coming to Christ is to repent of sin. Jesus said, if you don't repent, you'll perish. Now, Christians aren't expected to be perfect, but we are expected to turn from sin, and then we are expected to turn toward Christ, and we are to walk toward the example that he set. And then the third thing we are to do is acknowledge that the Bible commands us to publicly confess our faith in Christ. And this is Romans 10, verse 9, a very famous scripture. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. So today's topic is the end of the beginning. So the final or the end step in accepting God's offer and the beginning of the Christian life is baptism. And baptism is a core practice in the Christian religion. Almost every church practices it in some form. However, it's practiced in different ways and is given different emphases. So there's obviously some confusion around what it means and how we should do it. And there's also some disagreement about the role that baptism plays in salvation. There's controversy about who should be baptized. Should it be infants or those who are old enough to be able to make a personal faith decision? And then how should a person be baptized? Should they be completely immersed in water? Or is it okay to just have water sprinkled on them? And then the purpose of baptism. And this ranges from some saying that baptism alone saves you to others who say that it doesn't matter at all. It's just a symbol of what has already taken place in the heart. During the Dark Ages, baptism actually became a controversy because the significance of baptism was exaggerated during that time because it was believed that people were born with original sin. So it became the practice of the church to baptize babies immediately after they were born because of the fear that the child would die and then would not be forgiven of their sins and would not be able to have the promise of eternal life. And it didn't matter what they believed or how they acted after that point. 
The parents just said, we've had them baptized, and that's good enough. Now, Yaakov Smirnov, in his book, I, I pronounce his name differently now since I spent some time in Poland a couple of years ago, and he wrote a book, America on Five Rubles a Day. And he said, coming from the Soviet Union, I wasn't prepared for the incredible variety of products in American stores. On my first shopping expedition, I saw powdered milk. You just add water and you have milk. And then the next time I was there, he said, I saw powdered orange juice. You just add some water and you have orange juice. And then I saw baby powder. And I thought, what a country. Now, some people leave the impression that you just add water and you've got an instant Christian. But when Martin Luther and the Reformers rediscovered the biblical doctrine of salvation by grace through faith, they correctly rejected the notion that baptism alone saves you. But in reacting against baptism alone, some have swung the pendulum too far in the opposite direction, and some will even say that God chooses to give your faith, and if you aren't chosen, then you're out of luck. So let's examine what the Bible says about baptism and as it relates to our response to God's offer of salvation through grace. So when did baptism originate? The practice of immersing a candidate in water began with a man named John, who was a predecessor of Jesus. He was actually Jesus' cousin. So Mark 1 verse 4. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the Greek word used here is baptizo, which simply means to immerse in water. So John was immersing people in water, and he was doing it as a sign that they were going to change their behavior, that they were repenting. And then in John 3, 23, and now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. So John hadn't copied anyone else. This was unique to his ministry. He was telling people that what was going to happen, there was going to be another one who would follow after him. And he would do more than just immerse in water. So in Matthew 3.11, he said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then John was stunned when one day his cousin, Jesus of Nazareth, came to him to be baptized. And John was basically saying, uh, you need to be baptizing me, not me baptizing you. But Jesus replied, this needs to be done. We must carry out all that God requires. So Jesus wasn't baptized for the repentance of sin, but it was to set an example of how important baptism is really meant to be. And then at the end of his ministry, Jesus gave his followers a command that has become our theme verse in this series of messages. So it's Matthew 28, 19. He said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So in the Bible, the phrase in the name of, that means by the authority of. So we're commanded to make as many disciples as possible and baptize them 
in the authority of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Then a second question we look at is, how was baptism practiced in the New Testament church? The book of Acts is actually our church history book, and it contains a number of conversions that have taken place. And we're going to look at these and get an idea of the role that baptism played in each of them. So there's lots of scripture today. I don't want to go wrong by reading scripture. Nobody can criticize that. In Acts chapter 2, the disciples were there waiting, actually hiding in the upper room. They were praying and they were fasting. And then they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. And as a result of that, they went into Jerusalem and they boldly proclaimed that Jesus of Nazareth really was the Messiah and that he had arisen from the grave. And then in Acts 2, verse 37, Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. So they believed the message, they repented of their sins, they confessed their faith, and they were baptized that day. In Acts chapter 8, we read about the conversion of a group of people in Samaria. And Philip had been preaching to them about Christ. And then in Acts 8, 12, But now the people believed Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And as a result, many men and women were baptized. And then later on in that same chapter, we read about the account of the Ethiopian eunuch. And Philip was walking along the road and discovered this guy sitting there in a chariot and he was reading the book of Isaiah. Now I wish all my conversions were this straightforward that God had set it up so well. But here's this guy, he's reading. So Philip goes over and asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And the guy says, no, I need some help. And this was in pre-COVID days. So Philip got up into the chariot, sat beside him, and explained to him. So in verse 35, beginning with this same scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. And as they rode along, they came to some water. And the Philip said, excuse me, and the eunuch said, look, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? He ordered the carriage to stop, and they went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. Then Chapter 10 takes us into another area as we see the first non-Jewish convert. Peter went to the home of a Roman centurion named Cornelius. He was a God-fearing man, but he didn't know anything about Christ. And even though this guy was a Gentile, Peter began to preach to him about Jesus. And then in verse 44, even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. Now I take that as meaning the tongues of fire, the speaking in unknown languages as the apostles experienced themselves. And because in verse 47, they said, Can anyone object to their being baptized now that they have received the Holy Spirit just as we did? 
So this was obviously a sign. And now as soon as Peter was convinced that God was going to allow the Gentiles into the kingdom of God, he commanded that they be baptized. In Acts 16, we see the record of the conversion of Lydia. In the city of Philippi, Philip went down to the river and he found this group of women studying and praying. So once again, they were reading the Old Testament scriptures and then he began to tell them about Jesus. So we pick up in verse 14. One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshiped God. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. She and her household were baptized, and she, was asked, and she asked us to be her guests. If you agree that I am a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she urged us until we agreed. So then Lydia is baptized, and in that same chapter, we see the conversion of the jailer in Philippi. An earthquake has taken place, and all the prisoners' chains have fallen off. The doors have opened, and that jailer is certain that all of them have escaped. And for him in that position, that would mean the end of his life. So he is about to take his own life. And then Paul cries out, wait, excuse me, Peter cries out, we're all here. And then in verse 30, then he brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of the Lord with them and with all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. And then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. And then in Acts 22, we see the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Paul or as we now know him, hated Christians and was persecuting them to death. He was on his way to Damascus to arrest more of them, but he was just outside the city when a great light blinded him, and it knocked him to the ground, and he called out, Who are you, Lord? And the response was, This is Jesus whom you are persecuting, the one who has risen from the dead. And then he said, What do you want me to do? And Jesus said, you go on into Damascus, and you'll be told what to do. So Saul now believed. He couldn't deny the evidence. And he repented of his sin, and he went to Damascus. And not to crucify Christians, but with a humbled attitude. And then he confessed, who are you, Lord? And in Damascus, a Christian by the name of Ananias actually came to Saul, and he told him why the Messiah had to die. So we're in verse 16 of chapter 22. Ananias said to him, And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and have your sins washed away, calling on his name. So each recorded conversion in the book of Acts begins with faith and then concludes with baptism into Christ. So that is the end of the beginning of the Christian life. Uh, Tyndale's commentary said, In apostolic times, it is plain that baptism followed immediately upon faith in Christ. Faith in Christ and baptism were not so much two distinct experiences as they were a part of the whole. 
So then we ask, why did God ordain baptism? Why did he design the ordinance of immersion in water as a channel of his grace? Why didn't he just say, write, I love Jesus, on a whiteboard a hundred times, or carry a hundred-pound cross around for three or four days? There are some distinct reasons why God, in his wisdom, gave us baptism, why it reveals and meets our deepest needs. First of all, it's an appropriate biblical expression of real faith. Because most times when Jesus healed people, he actually asked them to express their faith. To the man who had the withered hand, he said, stretch forth your hand. To the man who was blind, he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam and you will be healed. To the lepers, he said, go show yourself to the priest and you will be healed. Psychologist William James said, an impression without an expression leads to depression. So if we're impressed with something, there has to be an outlet. There has to be a way for us to express that. So if we grieve, God has given us tears. If we're tickled about something, God has given us laughter. And has this ever happened to you in church? It did when I was a kid. It happened times when I was an adult as well. The place where you're supposed to be holding this in. And then if we're startled, we have the expression of a scream. If we fall in love with somebody, God has given us intimacy and marriage to express our love. So an impression without an expression leads to depression. When we believe the gospel and we are convicted of sin, there needs to be an expression of faith. And baptism meets that need for expression. In Acts chapter 2, the people ask Peter, well, what do we do now? They realized that Jesus really was the Messiah. They had come to believe in him. And Peter didn't say, don't do anything. He said to repent and be baptized. And he, I've never had anyone come out of the baptistry and say, is there anything else I, I need to do now, pastor, in order to accept Christ? There was a completeness, a rightness about it that people sense. So God knows that baptism meets our need for expression. It's also a symbol of cleansing. When you're dirty, you wash your body in order to clean it, and baptism is a God-commanded response of our faith. And when we're baptized in water, it symbolizes the cleansing that takes place in our heart. And think of all the people that struggled with guilt. Adam and Eve, after their sin, they hid from God in the trees. David, he, he was pleading for forgiveness because of the guilt of his sin. Peter was weeping over the fact that he had denied knowing Jesus. The guilt that Judas felt actually led him to take his own life. And Pilate, he was washing his hands of the blood of Jesus. He, he didn't want any guilt to be on him. So when you're guilty, how do you erase the sense of guilt. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. So the water doesn't cleanse our sin, but it's a symbol of the fact that the blood of Christ cleanses from within. So God meets our need for cleansing at baptism. 
Ananias said to Saul, this murderer of Christians, he said, you believe in Christ? Then get up and be baptized, washing away your sins. Now, baptism is also a source of fellowship or unity. And it's a shame that baptism has actually become a source of controversy because God intended it to be just the opposite, for it to be a source of harmony, unity. Ephesians 4 is very familiar. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace, for there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and in all and living through all. That is what it gives us, that source of unity. And baptism makes us disciples. We're saved when the Holy Spirit marks us. And God determines when, where, and how we're saved. But the Bible teaches that baptism is kind of the culminating point of that process of conversion. Baptism is the end of the beginning. Now, some of the most frequently asked questions about baptism are, well, do you have to be baptized? And Mark 16, 16 says, anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved, but anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. So that verse seems to be saying that baptism is a necessary part of the salvation process. It's the end of those beginning steps. And if God chooses to save people who haven't had the opportunity or the knowledge to be baptized, that's certainly his prerogative. But we can't overlook that verse. We can't not teach it. And remember the story in John 9 when uh, Jesus was with this visually challenged man. And Jesus put the clay on his eyes and told him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. The man did, and he was healed as a result of that. The water didn't heal him. Jesus did. But the applying of the water was when Jesus' promise was fulfilled. If he refused to be washed in that pool, would he have been able to see? Maybe. God's grace would have healed him anyway, possibly, but he had no guarantee. Complete faith results in complete obedience. So baptism alone, it doesn't save us. We're saved by the grace of God when we trust Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And part of that trust is repenting, it's confessing, and it's being baptized. It's, it's like a package deal. Now, here's the second question. If I don't totally agree with you, am I welcome in this church? And as I look around me, I see all kinds of churches in the neighborhood. No, you are very welcome here. Now, some would say they would put more emphasis on baptism than what I've just mentioned. Others would say I will put less emphasis on it. And it's not an issue over which we'll split. I'm going to preach that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And those who trust in Christ are instructed to repent of sin, to confess their faith, and to be baptized into Christ. The Bible says make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So on any issue, that is a key verse for us to remember. Then another question is, do I have to be baptized by full immersion in water? 
See, that mode of baptism is representative of Jesus' death, his burial in water, and his resurrection. When baptism was first instituted by God, it was by full immersion in water. And it wasn't until the Vatican Council of 1311 that men decided that sprinkling would be an acceptable substitute. And millions of people have only experienced sprinkling for baptism, and we trust that God is looking at the heart of each of those individuals. But if someone discovers the difference and wants to take a chance, that's up to them. But I feel it's wise to be on the infallibly safe side and follow the biblical instructions as closely as possible. Let's say that you bought a lottery ticket and discovered that you were holding the winning prize of a million dollars, and it said on the ticket, you have 24 hours in order to claim your prize. Would you then say, "Eh, I'm going to wait until half an hour after the deadline and see if they'll still give me the prize? You wouldn't take that chance. You'd be there as soon as the doors opened. You would want to be on the infallibly safe side. So God has offered us forgiveness of sin and eternal life, and why would we want to get by with as little as we could in order to be saved? I love the story of Apollos in Acts 18. He was preaching about Christ. He was devout. He was mighty in Scripture. But he was in error about baptism because he was preaching about John's baptism. That was all he knew. And there was a couple in that church by the name of Priscilla and Aquila, and they took him to lunch. And they didn't say, young man, you're going to go to hell for what you believe about baptism. Nor did they say, it doesn't matter what you believe about it. But I love what Acts 18.26 says. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him preaching boldly in the synagogue, they took him aside and explained the way of God more accurately. I really like that phrase, explain the word of God even more accurately, because I believe that baptism by immersion of a person old enough to make a faith decision is explaining the word of God more accurately. Do you have to be baptized by immersion to be a member of HCC? The answer is yes. We don't require that you be immersed here in this church like some churches do. And you can participate in most activities of the church without being a member. And we don't want you to be immersed just so you can be a member of this church. We want you to do it because it's what God wants you to do because it's the end of the beginning in your Christian walk. But if you've already been immersed in another church, we would love to have you commit to membership here at HCC. And then the last question, when should my children be baptized? We think that a child should be nurtured by the parents until they reach that age where they're accountable and where they, of their own free will, can give their lives to Jesus Christ and be baptized. And parents shouldn't force that, but encourage it. Years ago, Guidebook magazine uh, carried the story of Paul Harvey's baptism. And uh, most of you don't know him, and I'm not going to take the time to explain it, but he was a radio news personality. And he related how he had accomplished pretty well every goal in his life by the 1970s. But he said there was an emptiness, there was an incompleteness in his life that he couldn't put his finger on. But he and his wife were vacationing, 
and they decided to visit a small church near where they were, and they went inside, and there were 12 people present. And he said, as I sat there, I was thinking about John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And I loved that promise of eternal life. And although I'd never gone to the front of the church or gone to an altar, he said, one night alone in my room, I had kneeled by my bed and I had surrendered my life to Christ. But then he said in this message, I began to focus when he talked about how much we need to surrender our lives to Christ. Because he said this message is about baptism. He said, first of all, I kind of yawned when he said that. But then when he talked about us surrendering our lives to Christ in order to find ultimate purpose for living, then I began to perk up. And then he began to talk about baptism being symbolic of the burial of the old person and the rising to walk in a new life. He quoted support of scripture. He said there's no magic in the water, but it's an act of total submission to God. And then at the end of the service, he said, if anyone hasn't been baptized in this way, I invite you to come to the front. And the preacher had said that there was nothing magical about the water, yet As I went to the front and as I descended into the water and rose out of it again, I knew something life-changing had happened, a cleansing inside and out. And no longer would there be two uncertain, contradictory Paul Harveys, just one immensely happy one. And I felt a surging of the Holy Spirit The change that that simple act has made in my whole life is immense. It's indescribable. Since totally yielding to him in baptism, my heart just can't stop singing. Also, perhaps because baptism is such a public act and because one's dignity is drenched as one's body, I discovered a new unselfconsciousness in talking about my belief. So baptism is in many ways the first test of obedience as a disciple. Jesus commanded it, and baptism is a public confession of faith. It does not earn our salvation. Getting wet is not how we gain heaven. However, it is an appropriate expression of our faith. So have you gone all the way to the end of the beginning of the Christian life? So many of you are new to us in the past two years, and we've not been able to hold our monthly pizza with the pastor sessions where we get to know you, find out where you're at. But there are probably many of you that have been baptized by immersion, and you could become members of our church. And there are others of you that have not yet been baptized, and I'm going to get a lot of messages this week because you want to talk about that and study even more about what God's Word has to say. And we're at the end of this series of messages, we're hoping that we'll be able to break out this new class that we call a partnership class, and where all of this will be broken down in even greater detail as well.